Let's pray together. God, your promises are good, and they're right, and they're always true. And today, we just we want to take a moment, we just want to take a beat and say, yes, I'm resting in your promises. God, you promised to redeem all things. You promised to make us new. You promised to give us the mind of Christ. You promised to give us wisdom. You promised to shape our hearts and minds so that they look more like you than not. You promised to provide for our every need. You promised to give us grace to forgive our enemies. You promised to restore us and make us whole. And every single one of those promises is guaranteed with a yes and an amen, which means like, make it be so. God, I pray that for those of us uh, who don't know you yet or who aren't walking with you fully, God, I pray that in our time together this, this morning, I pray that our eyes would be opened so that we would see you as kind, gracious, steadfast, and loving. I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by a very rich sense of who you are so that we would get to a point where we want nothing other than to know you, nothing less to be so captivated by you that we can't do anything other than follow you with our everything. Speak to us in these moments, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Like we said, we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. And I don't know about you, but I tend like not to be a poetry guy by nature. Like, I, I can respect it, but you won't want to find me like sitting down and reading a book of poetry by the beach this summer. I tend to be more of a prose person. So it poses, or at least in my past, it's posed a little bit of problems with the Psalms, because what is it? It's a book of 150 poems. It's, a, it's an anthology of songs that people have sung to God throughout history. And apparently I, I'm not alone in my confusion or my wrestling with the Psalms. There's a guy by the name of John Goldingay, who is a renowned professor of the Old Testament. And I heard a story, uh, kind of him telling his story on a video in which he said these words. He goes, I think back to when I was an assistant rector or pastor in the Church of England. And when we were discussing new orders of worship, it, we talked about using fewer psalms in our worship services than we had in the past. And at a parish council meeting, I said, it would be good to use these new services. We wouldn't spend so much time using the stupid psalms that are so meaningless. My boss withered me across the room and said, my boy, one day you will need the psalms. And he was right. Years later, John's first wife, Anne, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And John would get up in the middle of the night and yell at God. And he would use the words of the Psalms to do so. It was during this season in the summer of 1998 that I met John. He was my Old Testament professor at graduate school in suburban Los Angeles. One of his traditions was to host an evening pool party for his students at his apartment complex. 
This is the first and only time I ever met Anne. She sat in her wheelchair and she rolled it right up to the edge of the pool so that together with her husband, she could meet and converse with us students. I'll never forget that moment. The Golden Ace didn't use suffering as an excuse to withdraw or complain or hunker down. In the midst of their very real trials, they bore witness to the faithfulness of God and tried to celebrate every moment as it came. The way their life reminded me of something that John says, which is this, the Psalms shape the way that we think about God. And watching how John and Anne thought about God inspired me to change the way that I think about God's Word. How we approach the words in the book of God ultimately tell us what we think about God. And what we think about God tells us what we think about ourselves. And what we think about ourselves dictates the choices that we make. John wasn't the only person who was shaped by the Psalms. Jesus was too. There's a biography of Jesus in the New Testament called the book of Matthew. And in it, we hear that Jesus quotes the Psalms when he was teaching his disciples in parables. He talks about Psalm 78, Psalm 119. He quotes Psalm 8 when he clears the temple of the money changers and the merchants. He cites Psalm 110 and 118 in his debates with his religious uh, uh, critics, the Pharisees. And maybe his most famous reference is when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 22. Even Satan knows the Psalms. He twists Psalm 91 to tempt Jesus while he was in the wilderness. Not only did Jesus read and pray the Psalms, it's possible that he sung them with his friends. We read in Matthew 26 that at the Last Supper, Jesus and his friends sung a hymn at the Last Supper. We read in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in prison. It's possible that these hymns that they were singing were well-known psalms. In fact, 26 out of the 150 psalms qualify as hymns. In fact, the Hebrew name for this book of the Bible is Hymns of Praise. One could argue that the psalms were the primary playlist for the Jewish people. If they had a Spotify, psalms would be its own channel. And in order for us to fully grasp the heartbeat of psalms, I think it's right for us to start at the beginning. So let's look at Psalm chapter 1. It's the gateway to the whole book. It reads as follows. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The psalm answers two questions. Who does God bless? And how does God bless them? So the first one is, who does God bless? Well, it says this, blessed is the person who does not. Walk in the road with the wicked. The translation there for wicked is an actively bad person. And it also says, blessed is the one who doesn't stand in the way with sinners. The word sinner is a, a guilty person. Somebody who's um, offending God. And then finally, blessed is the person who refuses to sit in the company of mockers. 
somebody who is ridiculing faith. So think about that for a moment. Basically what the psalmist is saying that bad company initiates a sequence of spiritual inertia. Think about this for a moment. It starts with somebody who is walking, and then they're standing, and finally they sit down. Yesterday, our family uh, went uh, on a walk from our home in Zealand to Fuzzy Peach in downtown Zealand because that's, that's what you do when you get frozen yogurt. You pretend that you're going to burn off all the calories on a walk, even though the math never works out. So we're, we're going on a walk, and our 11-year-old daughter says to my wife, she goes, isn't it funny how when you start walking, you don't even think about what you're doing. Your body's just walking. And I... I hadn't thought about that, but I did after she mentioned it. And isn't it funny how when we make a conscious decision to move in a direction, all we do once we make that decision, our brain starts processing that data and forces our body to go in the direction that we want. And so what the writer is saying here is that nobody accidentally finds their way under the path of the wicked. At one point, like, you, you made a choice to move in step with people who are living their lives at cross purposes with God. So the writer says, I walk near people who are spiritually opposed to God. You, you, you can't affect that. You, you, there's nothing you can do to influence that. The world is filled with people who disagree with us. So you're going you're to bump elbows with those people. But there's a difference between walking near somebody who's living at cross purposes with the gospel and walking with them. So the writer says, once we start walking with people, it's only a matter of time before we stop walking altogether. And we start standing around with people who are opposed to God. And then finally, we, we pull up a chair and we sit down in a circle, get input, counsel, connection, maybe even friendship with people who are actively opposed to God. Now, some of us who read this and we go, okay, that, that's fine. Um, truth is, I don't, I don't have any friends who are wicked. I don't know that I would call them mockers. They don't, they don't openly ridicule me for my faith. They're just, they're just kind of pulling in a different direction. L- let me say this. When the psalm was written, in order for you to get negative input, you had to be in immediate physical proximity with people who had different thoughts. What's the challenge of the world that we live in? We can get input from people that we will never meet in this world. We get bombarded by spiritual impulses. We get bombarded by conflicting value systems every single day we get in our car, turn on the radio, or any single time we pop open our laptop or tablet, or any single time we swipe on our phone. When I, when I sit down with a device of any kind, this is not, a, this is not like a, a, a rant against technology, it's simply an acknowledgement that if I sit down with my device based on who I'm following on Instagram, who I'm watching on Twitter, what I'm watching on YouTube, or what I'm internalizing via Netflix, is what? Those are all respective data points in which I am getting thoughts, ideas, impulses, values. Those are cultivating and nurturing my very appetite. And we can find ourselves walking in a direction that is diverging from the path that God would have us on without really thinking too hard about it. So the psalmist is saying, you receive joy when you don't walk that path. You receive delight when you don't stand in that company. You receive soul flourishing when you refuse to sit in a circle with people who aren't ultimately headed where you want to go. Instead, it says what? It says, blessed, joy-filled is the one who delights in the law of God. One scholar, John Durham, says that the law might not actually mean the verses that we find in the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. He's saying the law of God in this passage might mean the instruction of God the guidance of God, or even the revelation of God. 
So maybe what this verse is actually saying is, blessed is the one who delights in being connected with God. Blessed is the one who is constantly thinking about who God is, how God functions, what God desires. So who's the person that God blesses? The person that God blesses is the one who experiences life when they are connected with God and connected with other people who are pushing them towards God. And then we have this follow-up question. Well, what what does the blessed life look like? How does God bless the people who walk with him? He says this, the person who delights in God is somebody who is like a tree planted by streams of living water. I just had an opportunity to visit Israel with 23 other guys from the central family. And we had an opportunity to see all different parts of the country. You get to see the coast of the Mediterranean. You get to see forests in the north. We got to see a freshwater lake called Galli. But when you run into the south, you, you hit the desert. And we believe that in the south, that's where some of the Psalms were written. In fact, we got a chance to visit this, this desert oasis called En Gedi. This beautiful kind of spring that's tucked away in a mountain cleft. And when you look around that, you're hard-pressed to find any trees or any streams. But just, just so that you can like fully grasp this, you see this tree that's right, right by the streams of water, but you can't fully appreciate it without the audio, so uh, I took some video for you. This, this isn't just a, a steady trickle, this is a roaring stream. It's announcing to anybody within earshot that there is life, there is nourishment. There is restoration for the weary right here. And God is saying, the person who follows me, the person who trusts me, is like a tree planted and anchored near living water. It yields fruit. It produces results. Its leaves are filled with life. They never wither, and they always prosper. So let me pose this question today. Where are you planted these days? Do you, do you find yourself anchored in a spot where you feel like you are receiving soul nourishment from God? Or are you just kind of running around, testing different pools and ponds to see where you might find delight in any given moment or any given season? Where, where are you anchoring yourself these days? What is it that is nourishing you? What is it that's encouraging you and breathing oxygen into you at the soul level? Do you feel like your life is spiritually productive? Do you feel like the output of your life is something that is encouraging or life-giving or inspiring to the people around you? If the answer is yes, then you are likely positioned by streams of living water. It's no accident that Jesus calls himself living water. He's saying that my desire is to breathe nourishment into the people who come to me. But if you're not experiencing those things, the chances are you you might be drifting. You might not have thrown down spiritual roots. And as a result, you are at risk from being blown in any one of a thousand different directions. The purpose of a tree is to grow and to produce fruit. The psalmist says in verse 4, not so with the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So chaff is kind of like separating the, the kernel from the leftovers when you're threshing wheat, but if you don't have a lot of experience with 
threshing wheat. I guess the only, when I, when I think about chaff, something that's blown by the wind, the first image that comes to my mind is any Western movie, at, at, like any Western movie that you've ever seen, when a gunfight's about to go down in like a dusty ghost town, and that little tumbleweed rolls across the middle of the street, that's, that's what the Bible is talking about. It's saying like a wicked person who has no roots, they are dried out and vulnerable to every passing gust of wind. Jesus' contemporary, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, has zero tolerance for fruitless trees. He says this in Matthew chapter 3. He goes, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What John is trying to say to his gathered audience, he goes, it's possible for you to know all of the Bible verses and all of the Bible stories And it's possible for you to be able to check all of the right belief boxes and still not have a life that is so connected to God that you are generating output, that your character, that your choices, that your business, that your family relationships are pointing people back to the Father heart of God and a a compelling picture of the kingdom of God every day and in every way. That's why a few years later, Jesus is frustrated by a tree that is not producing fruit. Matthew 21, 19, it says, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. How many of you have children who live in your home who do something like this? We've got a pantry in which all of our snacks go. Our crackers are in there, the chips are in there, the cereal's in there. I have a child, I have yet to identify them, I have theories because we have four, who will eat snacks and then put an empty bag all the way back in the box and put the box back in the pantry. And I go into the pantry and I'm like, oh, I want this snack, and I pick it up and it's empty and I was like, curse you box, may you never hold snacks again. Like, why? Because the purpose of the snack box is to be filled with snacks. If it's empty, it has failed to fulfill its destiny. People who put empty boxes back don't understand what they're for. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes, a tree, by its very definition, was created by God to bear fruit. If we are not bearing fruit, especially those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're not bearing fruit, we're not living into our spiritual identity. We are failing to fully lean into our spiritual destiny. God is saying, I have created you for this. Stop settling for this. The book of Jude takes it one step farther. Jude is this kind of very short book in the New Testament that often gets overlooked. And Jude is also lamenting the fact that there are people who know about God but refuse to fully trust and follow Him. He says, these people the ones that the psalmist calls wicked, sinners, mockers, they slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. He goes, woe to them, they've taken the way of Cain. If you're new to the Bible, Cain was a guy who was jealous of his brother, and it got so ugly that that he killed him. He goes, they've taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who sold his integrity for a paycheck. And they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah was a guy, a, a leader during the time of Moses who thought that he could do better than the person that God had appointed over him. And his arrogance got him and his tribe destroyed. Jude says, these people, 
these selfish people, their blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who only feed themselves. And then he uses some images that the Psalms would affirm. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. What is Jude saying? He says, when people actively resist God, either by envy or greed or lust or pride, they become like dead trees. So here's the thing about trees. Their success hinges not on the desire of the tree, but on the skill of the gardener. Trees thrive not by virtue of their hard work, their wit, or their strategy. They thrive by the grace of God. And our job isn't to be awesome trees. Our job is to submit to God when he wants to plant us. Why? Because plants with great roots bear good fruit. Plants with great roots bear good fruit. Yesterday, Kelly came home from the farmer's market with some plants, and one of them was a tomato plant that actually, like, she had some hanging baskets. I love hanging baskets. You, like, you, you hang them, and then you try not to kill them by not watering them. But then she also got a tomato plant, and that required a little bit more work, and I came a little bit late to the party. She had already done 80% of it, and we had to get that tomato plant in the ground, and she said it, it has, they said that it has to be really deep in order for that root to finally connect. And I think that some of us, we're like plants that we buy, and they come in that little plastic bucket, and we take ourselves out of the plastic bucket, we put ourselves on top of the dirt, and we're like, all right, here I go. When in fact, we have to say, God, will you, will you dig a hole and firmly plant me in this place? Not just a season or a stage of life, but in a spiritual environment where I feel like I am fiercely connected to you, because if I'm not connected to you, I'll get uprooted and I'll get blown away. I can't speak for you, but all I know is that every single time something has broken down in my spiritual life, it's because I wasn't connected to God. And the reason I wasn't connected to God is in my heart of hearts, I doubted whether or not his promises were good and true. I doubted whether or not the answers were yes and amen. Something in me says, you know what? The idea of God is nice and flowery, but you can't really trust him. You're ultimately on your own. And so I looked for places outside of God for wisdom or success or direction or delight, and every single time I came up empty. And when our view of God is flawed, then we try to be God. And I don't know anybody who's ever done it well. So the choice that you and I have to make is, will I walk down paths I ought not walk, while I stand in places I don't belong, while I sit in circles that aren't good for me, or will I find my way to the stream of living water whose name is Jesus and plant myself there? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to walk in delight, you have to leave the path of destruction. If you want to experience joy, you must stop looking in the places that leave you empty. If you want to bear fruit, you need to stop wandering and anchor yourself at the stream.
One of the favorite places that we got to go to when we were in the Holy Land is we went to the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee and went on the Mount of Beatitudes, a traditional site where Jesus may have given the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with these words, blessed are the. And at the end, Jesus offers a, a compare and contrast analogy. He says, a wise person builds their house on the foundation of God. A wise person stabilizes and anchors themselves in God's wisdom. The foolish person builds their house in a dry riverbed, and when the winds and the waves come, they're swept away. What do we read in Psalm 1? At the beginning of Psalm 1, the writer says, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. And at the end, they say, the person who walks with God is honored, and the person who doesn't is swept away by the wind. We have a very similar formula in both moments. That Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount in some ways mirror one another. And both of them start with an invitation. It's saying, do you want to live a joy-filled life? And then they end with a caution. They say, the choice is in your lap and the stakes are high. If you walk with God, it looks like this. If you walk away, you can expect this. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in a church environment that always started with the threats of what happened if you screwed up. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that the people there weren't well-intentioned, but a lot of times, like, the leading blow in the God narrative was, Steve, you're in huge trouble, and if you don't figure this out, you're on the fast track to hell. Now, that got my attention, but the entire, to the, the totality of my spiritual journey was, was based in what? Fear. How many of you know that you can only be motivated by fear before so long that you just tap out and you're like, I'm done being afraid. I'm just going to live my life. But Jesus and the psalmist, they don't start with fear. What do they start with? They start with blessed is the one. They start with a smile and invitation. They go, hey, guess what? There's good news. There's a better way to do this life. There's a better way to walk this journey. It's to find your delight in God. And if you're somebody who's at a spiritual crossroads, I, I don't want to deny the fact that there are severe, long-term, yes, eternal consequences for walking away from God, but that's not where Jesus starts the conversation. He starts here. He says, the kingdom is close to you. And because the kingdom is good, repent and believe the good news. Jesus doesn't say there's this place called hell and it's really, really scary. You don't want to go there. Follow me instead. He goes, no, no, no. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. There is delight and joy and redemption with somebody who puts one foot in front of the other and walks with me. And all I want to ask you is, where are you going to find your delight? And if you're not experiencing any delight right now, will you acknowledge that the places that you have been pursuing delight have failed you? And Jesus is graciously, kindly, faithfully inviting you to him for the first time or inviting you back to him again.